that's what happens in the parking lot every Friday night. So if you can join us, we'd love to have you. <laughs> no, not really. You know, every time I see that, I always get a chill up my back. You know, it's uh, it's an amazing thing to see thousands of people uh, dressed the same way, doing the same thing, and doing it all at the same time. And this is just so powerful. It's a powerful picture of um, the beauty and the majesty of unity. Um, when a large group is convicted and committed to one goal, one purpose, and one way to doing something, it uh, really is powerful. It's a powerful image. Uh, God knows the importance of unity, and uh, he knows the uh, power of it with the body of people, and that's why he wants it in the church. And that's why we want to talk about it today, because unity is on the heart and mind of God. And it should be on the hearts and mind of God's people. And so uh, this uh, achieving unity, though, talking about unity and achieving it are two different things. Because we know that in this individualistic society that we live in, that uh, the, the, the world lives, uh, the society lives by a different kind of creed. And it goes something like this. Nobody is right and nobody is wrong. So let's all do it the way we want to do it. You see, and so that makes unity pretty tough. It makes it hard, whether it's in the workplace or it's any place else. It's really tough. Another way that this is expressed is uh, I'm right and everyone is wrong, so I'll do it my way. <laughs> you see, and so there are people who live by that code, and uh, that's how they make their way through life. And so uh, unity, while it's uh, a great desire, while it's a great idea, it's very difficult to achieve. And so, but once it's achieved, the, the, the limits are just boundless as to what can happen. And so this is one of the great challenges of every church. I don't care if you're from this part of the world or the other side of the world. It doesn't matter. It is something that we're all facing is how to build unity in the body of Christ. And so what does the Bible say about unity in the church? It's a big subject. And so in the short time we have together, we hope we can make some uh, contributions uh, to your thinking on this. And so uh, just to begin our study, we want to just go back briefly because so many people have been in and out. We want to uh, just go over uh, reviewing where we have been. And so in your in your outline, in your bulletin, there are the different titles of the messages that we have gone through and some key words that will help you understand uh, the key concept that was in there. So I'm not going to read them all. They're there for you to read. Uh, so as you look at that, though, you begin to see that last week we talked about the leadership in the church. God has not left the church to just be rudderless and leaderless, but he has established an order of leadership in the church uh, through the elders and through the deacons. And so uh, those things are in play. So the elders and deacons are the key words for leadership of the church. But today we want to talk about the unity of the church and your part and my part and all of our part in this whole great endeavor, this great challenge to uh, be united as a church. Now, I must say to you right at the beginning that the concept of unity, spiritual unity, often will it's going to sound a little strange to you. It's going to be something that maybe you haven't quite thought through and perhaps you hasn't heard about it quite this way. And so uh, unity oftentimes is uh, kind of pictured like what was on the video. 
Okay, it's people all dressed alike, people all doing the same thing, all people yelling out the same thing, uh, you know, all at the same time. And so the idea is kind of like something external, uh, something that is measured in that way. So you can't have thousands of people beating on the drum like that and some guy out there saying, well, I'll do it my way. You know, <laughs> he would stand out <laughs> and he probably wouldn't stand out for long because he'd probably disappear. But the whole point is that, you know, you saw this, this picture. That's one kind of unity. But is that the kind of unity that God wants in his church? Um, I came from a church that emphasized outward unity. And so all the guys had the same length of hair. All the women had the length, same length of uh, dresses. All of the people, you know, uh, did stood, sat, and did everything exactly the same. And so the idea was, we're unified. We're unified. What's all this talk about unification? We're all unified, you know, outwardly. But inwardly was quite a different story, was quite a different story. And so what is biblical, what is spiritual unity? The concept of spiritual unity in the church, I'd like to share with you three important things, okay? Three important things. There are many more things that can be said, but I think these are important. The first is the cause, the cause, the cause of spiritual unity. Why can we be unified? If you turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4, you see unveiling before our very eyes a special uh, uh, basis for our unity. It says, first of all, in verse 1, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Now, the normal understanding of the calling is that it's a reference to our point of salvation. God's wooing and calling us to be saved, uh, to put our faith and trust in Christ who died and rose again from the grave for our sins. So because of what God has made possible through Jesus Christ, we are called. We are now uh, a different people, if you will. If you turn to Romans chapter 5, this is how God accomplished it. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. So God did something in the past that impacts all of us today and in the future. And so this was the sending of his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross to pay for our sins. And because he paid for our sins, then we don't have to. And so that was part of this calling. But then if you drop down a little bit lower in the verse to uh, in Ephesians chapter four to verses four to six, you see this. There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Now, what does this all tell us? It tells us that God is the center, is, is the, is the reason for everything that is happening. This calling, this, uh, int- our entrance into the family of God. God is the one who is responsible. And notice here, it's all three persons of the Godhead. The, the Holy Spirit, the, the Son, and God the Father, as he mentions there in those verses. So make no mistake. Our unity is on what God has done, is doing, and will do. Okay, that's what brings us together. 
It's not the fact that we have the same color hair. It's not the fact that we have the same color eyes. It's not that we all like the same kinds of food. That is immaterial compared to the fact that it is God and what he has done, is doing, and will do that brings us together. That's the foundation for our unity. And then, if you go a little bit further, there's another reason why we should have uh, 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 spiritual unity in the church. And that is the centerpiece of this unity is with God, his plans, and his purposes, his goals, and his glory. It's not that we're coming around together because we all believe in good deeds and all of this kind of thing. Although that's very tempting. But rather, it is the fact that the centerpiece is, uh, co- is the, the, what keeps us together, what unifies us, is his plans and purposes. Now, how is this unveiled for us? Well, if you look at John chapter 17, John chapter 17. We see that God has a plan, and this plan was marvelously worked out. And so in John chapter 17, starting with verse 20, you'll see that our unity is, is founded, is uni- we are united around the plan of God. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who believe in me through their word. And we don't have time to go through the whole context, But Jesus was sort of praying for the disciples at this point, and he unveiled how he was accomplishing his plan on the earth. His plan, Christ's plan, was that he would die and rise again. He'd die on the cross and rise again from the grave to pay for the sins of men. He would teach this. He would be this. He would accomplish this. And then he would teach it to the apostles. And the apostles, in turn, would teach it to others. And others would teach it to other others. And so on and so forth, down through the ages, all the way to us, all the way to you and you and you and me. And so that was the plan. And so this is what God was saying is that this is my plan and this is how I'm working it out. And he says that our unity is around this plan. And so when the apostles would preach and people would accept Christ and then the church would be formed and so on and so forth. But then it also revolves around the purposes of God. If you look at verse 21, that they may be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. So the plan was there, but what was it for? The purpose was that so people would believe that Jesus Christ was sent by God. He was the son of God. He is the savior of the world. And they could have forgiveness of sin and eternal life. And so that was the purpose. And then it's also revealed as we are united around the will of God. This is found in John chapter 5, verse 30. John chapter 5, verse 30. When you look at this, it says... Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own initiative as I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And then it's said another way in John chapter 8, John chapter 8 and verse 29. And he who sent me is with me and he has not left me alone. I always do the things that are pleasing to him. So the unity of God, the son is with the father and it involved his doing the will of God and whatever pleases God. And this is the same kind of unity he hopes for us. 
The unity that we have in Christ is around the plans of God, the purposes of God, and the will of God. That's the centerpiece of the whole thing, you see? Now, the problem with this is that oftentimes people will fight and fight and fight in a church, and they'll say, well, I want to do it this way, and I want to do it that way. It's because they have no clear picture of what are the plans, what are the purposes, and what is the will of God. You see, God has painted a picture of the big things that we ought to be doing and the things we ought to agree on. The how is going to be handled a different way, you see. But we need to be united around the general purposes and plans of God and his general will. Once that is agreed upon, then we can go after the details. Well... How are the details handled? Well, they're handled through the challenge of unity with diversity. They're handled through the challenge of unity with diversity. In uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4 to 7, we have this revealed to us. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4 to 7. And so, before we read that verse, though, I want to give you a little bit of background. Imagine the situation in the early church. The early church. In the beginning of the church, God brought together people from all different kinds of backgrounds. The rich, the poor, the slave, the free, the country people, and the city people. He brought them all together as they came to Christ. Now, can you imagine the diversity that was in there? Everybody thought differently. Everybody did things differently. It could have been a real, real mess. And the biggest division was between those who were Jewish and those who were Gentiles. I mean, you talk about deep-seated differences. There couldn't have been two groups so diametrically opposed as the Jews and Gentiles. So into this mix, God calls people to salvation. He brings them together. How is he possibly going to, how on earth is he going to possibly unite them together? Well... He took something that could have been a heavy negative and made it into a positive. And how did he do this? It's first through 1 Corinthians chapter 12. You see that there's a working out of unity with diversity. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4, it says, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. Does that sound familiar to you? (laughs) The Spirit, the Son, and the Father are all in there again. He says, look, things are different, but don't get all excited because we are in charge. There is one source and supervision that's going on. With the variety of gifts, in verse 4, there's one Spirit. With the variety of ministries, there's one Lord. Variety of effects, there's one God. And so uh, the universe, the unity of source and superstition, all three persons of the Godhead are involved in this sea of diversity. So no worries. Don't worry. Yeah, we're all different. Yeah, we're serving in different areas. Yes, there's going to be different effects. But be assured, God is in control. But notice here that there was one purpose, one purpose. Look at verse 7. He talks about all this variety. Then he comes down to verse 7. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For the common good. 
all of these differences coming together all at once. But they're there for one reason, and that is the common good. What is the common good? Well, let's go to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and look at verse 12, 14 verse 12. This gives us insight into that common good. So, also, since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. So, all of this variety, all of this diversity has been brought together, what? So that the church may be built up. That the church may be built up. Individuals and groups of individuals will be brought together so that they can grow in their faith. That they can grow in their love and glory for the Lord. And so this is why it's all happening together. So if you came in here wondering, what is this about spiritual unity? I mean, uh, uh, spiritual unity in the church. Does it mean that we all have to look the same? We dress the same? We, we have the same interests uh, only and all of this kind of stuff? No, it goes deeper than that. Because our unity is based on God. It is based upon a person, and it's based upon his plans and purposes and his will, you see. And we know that it's also based upon, the, uh, uh, based upon those things, and then it is also unity with diversity. There are going to be differences. There are going to be differences. One time I was challenged by a particular person, and they, they did it in a well-meaning manner. They were just honestly curious they said if there's only one god and there's one christ and there's one spirit why are there so many churches why are there so many different kinds of churches and i was scrambling around you know in my brain you know says, okay what good spiritual answer i can give to i said because god wanted it that way god wanted it that way why would god want it that way Okay. Now I'm not talking about churches that are far off in the universe and you know, unbiblical. You know, not teaching the Bible and believing the Bible and stuff like that. There's enough there that we can make decisions about that. However, there is a diversity of churches. They have churches that are in uh, that that can reach a certain group of people and do a very good job of it. Okay, and God has used those churches mightily. And so when I think of that, it's because God wanted it that way. There are different churches because there are different people. And God is interested in reaching all the different people with the truth, you see. Uh, if you come to Dallas, Texas, you are going to see a variety of churches. You see big churches. You see small churches. You see churches that uh, that are very much into uh, certain kinds of music. You see them get into different kinds of uh, preaching they, you know, and all these things. Now, these churches are good churches. I mean, they still believe this, essentially the things that we believe. Okay, so don't get me wrong. I'm not talking about cults or anything like that. But they do it differently. They do it slightly differently. And God uses that difference to be effective with different kinds of people, you see. And so please understand that, that while there is unity, there is still room for diversity in this whole thing. And only God can make it work. Only God makes it work. Only God makes it work. I just stand amazed. I go back home and I visit my children. They take me to their churches. They all go to different kinds of churches. They're sound churches. They are, they are biblically, doctrinally sound churches. But they do it slightly different. And I come out and I say, wow, I am just amazed. You see, 
And so unity then goes far beyond just the external and goes down deep into the fact that it's based on God, it's based upon his plans and purposes, and it is working through the unity with diversity. So that's what the concept of spiritual unity is about. Now, from that, we move on to the character. How is this kind of unity going to be promoted? How is it going to be promoted? Does God give us any indication in his work as to how this is all going to work? Well, he does. Back again to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. And then he goes back, and I want to explore this whole business of calling again. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Okay? And so the calling, if it refers to salvation, it refers to your position now in Christ. Okay? Your position in Christ. And so with this position in Christ comes certain expectations. And so I don't expect a person who is... um, uh, who's not a believer to completely buy in or practice these things. He's still living the way before he accepted Christ as Savior. But for those who have accepted Christ as our Savior, who have been called, there is a certain expectation in the way that we should behave. And part of that involves character. Of Part of that involves our character. So look at verse 2. So he says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, he says... And so these are three character, these are three attitudes or three character virtues that we have to have as part of our character. Now, it's interesting to note that he starts with humility. He starts with humility. That is like a dagger in the heart. That is like a dagger in the heart. Because it is the very opposite of pride. And most human beings, if you are a human being, okay, you are going to have a, a measure of pride in yourself. I want to do it my way. I'm the, I'm, I'm, I know what's right, so on and so forth. And he says, no, we need to come with an attitude or character virtue of humility. It's interesting that to the Greeks, this was very offensive. And this is something that was looked down upon. Why? Because they felt that humility was only a characteristic of a slave or of a servant. They didn't think it was for the ordinary Greek citizen. He ought not to be humble. But yet God says, look, if you're going to make this humility, you're going to make this unity work in the church. You have to have this particular characteristic, humility. Because why? Pride promotes disunity. Humility promotes unity. And so this becomes really important. How are we going to make this work every day? How are we going to make this work every time we meet together? Except that pride is controlled and that it is we have humility. The next thing is gentleness. This is the opposite of self-assertion, harshness, and rudeness. In fact, the word itself actually means mild-spirited. And another dynamic is self-controlled, self-controlled. It suggests um, Professor Harold Honer in his uh, commentary on the book of of Ephesians had this to say about this particular passage. He said, it suggests having one's emotions under control. It is the mean between who is one who is angry all the time and the one who is never angry. One who is controlled by God is angry at the right time, but never angry at the wrong time. And so this is a characteristic. He says, how are we going to make this unity really work? 
It's got to work with an attitude of humility, and it has to work with an attitude of gentleness. If, this is, if you're going to get mad all the time, you're going to get upset all the time, you're going to be rude, you're going to be harsh, you're going to be chewing out everybody, and so on and so forth, it's not going to work. There won't be unity. There won't be unity. And then number three, the third character trait is that it needs to be patience. There needs to be patience. And so the patience here means never giving up. It's the kind of patient that endures to the end, even in the midst of great opposition, suffering, and adversity. It is just the opposite of hastily retaliating against a wrong. Okay? Hastily retaliating against a wrong. Some of us have a real patience problem. We're not very patient with people. We know it. They know it. Everybody knows it. Okay? This is one of the areas in my life that God had to work on a lot over the, in the early days of my life. Man, it didn't take much to get my hair up on the back of my neck. And it didn't get, take much to get me to give a piece of my mind, which is very small to begin with, to another person. Okay? But nevertheless, God had to teach me patience. He says, Arnold, basically, if you ever hope to build a church, if you ever hope to build a spiritual body of people, you better learn patience. Not everything's going to happen when you want it, how you want it, uh, and, and according to when you want it. It's not going to do it that way. And so we had to learn patience. So these, this character of humility, this character of gentleness, this character of patience is what is going to work out unity in the church. It's not demanding that everybody look the same, talk the same, eat the same, and so on and so forth. It's much deeper than that. It goes down to the very heart, into our hearts. It comes down to who we are that makes unity work. So no more excuses. No more excuses saying, well, I'm smarter than you. I've got this and I've got that and I'm this and I'm that. And also, ah, come on. Come on. Let's all work together. What? For the common good. Let's demonstrate these character traits that God so much desires in our church. And then we will see real spiritual unity. Well, he even goes so far as to give us two ways that this can be acted out. There's two ways that these, uh, these virtues can be practiced, if you will. Look at ver- the bottom half of Ephesians chapter 4, verse 2. And he says, after with gentleness, showing tolerance for one another in love. Showing tolerance. In other words, giving, cutting people some slack in order to be a little more open to what they do and uh, why they do it. And unless it's just totally wrong, bare face in the scriptures, you've got to go after it. But he says, showing tolerance, showing this patience. But then he says, in love. And love is really important. It's not optional. It is essential that we have this love operating of, uh, in the background. If you look at Colossians chapter 3, verse 14, the Lord says this, and he says, Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. It is that which keeps this unity going. John had another way of saying this, and look in 1 John chapter 4, 1 John chapter 4, and you see this, and he makes, he makes the case very strongly for loving one another. 1 John chapter 4, verses 20 to 21. If someone says, I love God, 
and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. You see, love is really important. I see this all the time as my children were growing up. You know, when they're small and they're babies, you know, they are the cutest thing in the world. Maybe I drive you a little crazy. You don't get much sleep or things like that, but they're just so precious, okay? And then something happens. Around 12 or 13, they change. And they become some stranger in your house, you know? And so what happens is that you, 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 you tolerate them and you, and you put up with them and so on and so forth. You go with their ups and downs. They feel good one day. They feel bad the next. And sometimes it's, you know, by the minute it changes up and down, up and down. I want this. No, I don't want that. So on and so forth. But what keeps you in the game? Love. It keeps you in the game. Is that you love them so much that you are willing to go the extra mile. And so in the same way in a church, it is that love that keeps the thing going. It is love that keeps it going. I have it this way. Uh, God doesn't say like one another. No, he says love one another. You see, he's not going to settle for just like one another. He says love one another. Love is the grease that lubricates the gears of unity. If we love God and one another... The possibilities are limitless, are limitless, you see. And so love becomes very important. But then he also says, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace in verse 3. Being diligent literally means be eager to make and make every effort, to make every effort. And then to what? To preserve means to guard, to keep, to maintain the, the peace. And so he's saying be passionate about and make every effort to keep the peace, to keep the peace. You know, I wonder how many of us have actually gone the extra mile. How many of us have made the extra effort? You say, oh, well, you know, I, I, I just kind of this and I kind of that, you know. No, are you passionate? Are we passionate people about keeping the unity of the church? Or are we very more passionate about getting our way of doing things? You see? What is it? Make up your minds. And so God wants us to do that. Humility, gentleness, and patience are character virtues that will promote spiritual unity as believers lovingly tolerate one another even when there are difficulties and differences between them. Let me give you an example of this is that uh, when I first went into the ministry, God uh, called me to serve in a church that was predominantly Chinese-speaking and Chinese culturally. That was their orientation. And so even though I'm Chinese on the outside, I'm pretty American, okay, as you well know, okay. And so what happens, I went into this church, and, you know, I started having all kinds of problems. You know, they're not understanding. They're not following that, on and on and on and on. And then finally, I realized that part of it was my character that was not helping. I wasn't patient. I I wasn't gentle. I, I wasn't as humble as I ought to be and so on and so forth. 
And, and so it got to be a real problem. I wasn't tolerating uh, people. I wasn't open to many things. And so I didn't go the extra mile to, to help to, to keep the unity of the spirit, you know. And so these were all begin to become apparent and they'd be were pointed out to me. And people, they in turn, the leaders were patient with me and they took me aside and they gently began to coach me on how to foster unity in the church. I learned so much from them. I learned so much from them. And so uh, this is something that's good that can happen in a church. Well, what happens is, and when, when unity is achieved? The consequences of unity in the church. Well, we all know that God is pro-unity. And uh, the reason God is pro-unity is because he thinks it's really, really, really good. If you turn to Psalms, <clears throat> the book of Psalms, uh, uh, 133, verse 1, it says, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity, he says. God is pro-unity, okay? He thinks it's good. He thinks it's great that there is unity. But God also shows us how, how good unity is, but what can happen to when a church is united? Well, go with me to Acts chapter 2, please. Acts chapter 2. Amazing, amazing. When you see the early church and how together it was, and when it was together, it was awesome. If you look at Acts chapter 2, starting with verse 41, So then, those who had received his word were baptized, and that day were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and the breaking of bread and to prayer. And so the, the first thing you see is that the church came together and it was constantly involved and deep, uh, deep invo- deeply involved in learning, fellowshipping, and worshiping. And then they began to experience a sense of awe, it says in verse 30, 43. Everyone kept see, uh, feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. Things were happening. And then in verses 44 through 45, we see here that they began to meet needs at an unimaginable level. Okay? What do you mean by that, Pastor? I mean they saw the needs of people around them, and they went beyond the extra mile to meet the needs. What did they do? And those who had believed were together. They were like mine and had all things in common. They were together. They were united. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need, it says in those verses. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Unimaginable. But they did it. They were united together. They had all things in common. And then in verse 46 to 47, again, they were of one mind. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. And they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, it says. And praising God and having favor with all people. Imagine that. Imagine that. Something good being said about the church of God for a change. (laughs) <laughs> I'm getting a little weary sometimes of <coughs> how people, you know, the church of God is beaten down all the time for all the things it doesn't do or the things that it does wrong. But here, this church was praised for what it did right. And that's because they were unified. 
they were able to do this. And then in verse 47, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved, it says. Just amazing, fantastic. When the church is united, the church can do things like this. When the church is united, it can do things like this. You don't, most people have very low expectations of what a church can do. Really. Sometimes it's the members. We have very low expectations of what God can do through us, and we settle for it. But we ought not to settle for it. If we are united together on the plans and purposes of God and the person of God, the sky is the limit, folks. The sky is the limit. But are we willing to pay the price? Are we willing to be the people that it takes to be unified? That's a big question, you see. How much are you willing to be to become more like God and more like Christ in order to accomplish the things of God? Well, no, I've just been this way forever and ever. Or I like the way I am. I'm not going to change. I'm just going to be like this forever and ever. Say amen and all this kind of stuff. No, 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 no. What lies before us is tremendous potential. And so we need to seize it. A spiritually united church can be and do so much more than one that is not united. So, that brings us then to the close of this. Is It's time to be and time to behave. It's time to be and it's time to behave. God has clearly defined and directed us to, to unity. So, what can you and I do to achieve that in our life? Well, what can we do? What is our contribution to this? First of all, and let me suggest this to you. Commit yourself to the person, plan, and purposes of God. Okay? You've got to be fully outright committed to this thing. And this, means, this may mean for some coming to terms about salvation. Some have come to church for a long time. And, and some people are here for just a short time. And they haven't yet quite made up their mind about salvation. So they're still trying to earn their way to heaven. And God says... It's not by works, folks. If you turn to Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So it's time to trust. It is time to put your faith in Christ. For some, it's a matter, it's, a, it's coming to terms with your sanctification. And this means giving up long and short-term sins like pride and jealousy and hatred and selfishness. First Peter chapter 1, verses 14 through 16 tells us to be holy as God is holy. And then it lists off the things that we can put off. If you turn to Galatians chapter 5, verse 19, Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality. Idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, housing, and thing, uh, uh, carousing, and things like these, which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those who keep on practicing those things probably are not believers in the first place and probably will not and will not uh, achieve the kingdom of God. For some, it's coming to terms with our submission to God. The Lordship uh, to to God. If you look at uh, Romans chapter 12, Romans chapter 12, this is still probably in process for many of us, but others have given their lives and have decided that they're going to follow God. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God 
which is your spiritual service and worship. And do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that it, which is good and acceptable and perfect. Can we say that about ourselves? Have we made up our minds in those areas? You see, if we haven't settled these areas, salvation, sanctification, and submission to the Lord, we're probably not committed to God, to his plans, and to his purposes. We're holding back. We're holding back. You see? And that's why there's disunity. Or that's why there can be disunity instead of unity in a church. Number two. The last thing is change your attitudes towards others, especially those others in the body of Christ. Humility, gentleness, and patience need to, wrapped in love, need to characterize us. They need to be matured. They need to be nurtured in us. As hard as you may think that it is to be patient, as hard as you may think that it is to be humble, as hard as you may think it is to to, 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 to do all of these things and have all of these things, to be gentle, God says, do it. Do it and do it now. Do it and do it now. The time for just learning about unity is over. It's time to live it. It's time to live it. And I hope that that's what you'll take away from it this morning. The unity of a church starts with you and you and you and everyone who is a part of this church. What is at stake is the edification of the church and the glorification of God. So be united. Stay united, you see. And so I hope that this speaks a powerful message to all of us, including myself, as to what we can do to foster unity in the church. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your word. Father, the fact that you have revealed to us the major things, the big things that we ought to be concerned about. Father, it goes way past the external and it goes way down to the internal. So let us have true spiritual unity in our church. In Jesus' name, amen.